Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Scott Shute, the head of mindfulness and compassion programs at LinkedIn. Scott is also a featured trainer in the new Inner MBA, a nine-month immersion program that Sounds True has created in partnership with LinkedIn, Wisdom 2.0, and Mindful NYU, a division of NYU that grants participants a certificate of completion at the end of the nine-month program. The Inner MBA begins in the middle of September 2020, and if you want more information, you can visit innermbaprogram.com. For many years, Scott Shute served as VP of Global Operations at LinkedIn, and he lived as a type of dual agent, teaching meditation in his private life and leading a large team of more than a thousand people in his work life at LinkedIn. All of this came together a few years ago as Scott, in his own words, followed the energy and started to lead mindfulness meditation classes at LinkedIn. Scott talks about his journey and most importantly, how we're in the midst of a new revolution at work and in business and in business training that puts collaboration and human compassion, what Scott calls the journey from me to we, right at the center. Here's my conversation with Scott Shute. We're having this conversation, Scott, right in the midst of the quarantine period for most of us here in North America of the COVID-19 outbreak. And I want to begin by having you address those people who are business people who are feeling a lot of fear, anxiety, disruption, turmoil. Here they have a chance to listen to the head of mindfulness and compassion programs at LinkedIn Help those people who are really feeling a lot of fear right now, especially about the economy. Wow. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> what a way to start, right? It's uh, no pressure. Um, I think we're all going through something big, right? There's this physical wave of virus, which is certainly real. But I think even bigger, maybe, I don't know, a hundred times or a thousand times bigger is this wave of emotion, of fear, of anxiety, of the unknown. You know, and all the things that we talk about in the world of mindfulness and compassion address this, address our ability to handle these mental challenges, to be able to be strong from the inside out. 
And so I, I know that we're going to get into it, but, um, you know, for me, it starts with being present because our mind, I'll, I'll speak for myself, but I think it's probably true for all of us. Our mind races. And in this type of environment, it races towards the future of what could happen. What happens if I get sick? What happens if I lose my job? What happens if our company goes under, all our customers disappear? And we're, we are in a very huge way focused on, um, on that because it's such an unknown. You know, our lives run on, you know, kind of a, um, uh, an inertia. And we can see, you know, if we go one, two, three steps, we can usually see about where the fourth is. And right now that, that future is pretty hazy and that causes, that causes this anxiety. And so one of, there's lots of ways to deal with this, but one of the best ways is to stay in the present for as much as possible and not, and not get too caught up uh, to do a little bit of planning, but not catastrophize everything. I read something uh, this morning, which I thought was put very well. They said, this is a time to over-prepare uh, and not overreact. So I, I like that. So to that person who's listening, he says, you know, I get you. I don't want to spend all this time over catastrophizing in my mind. Help me work with that busy mind that is coming up with all of these disaster scenarios. Sure. I think first we understand why we do it, right? Because that, that kind of helps. So we start to, to be an observer of our own thoughts. We, we first have to get some understanding. So why do we do this? Well, we've been programmed. We've kind of evolved this way as a species to focus on the things that are going to kill us, right? Because we evolved from the nervous apes, not the ones who were chilled out. In other words, the nervous ones, any sign of danger, they ran. Uh, and these are our ancestors. And this is what we do. Our brains, our amygdalas are looking for things that will kill us all the time. And so, first of all, taking the, like, the guilt of, oh, how come I always feel this way? First of all, it's natural. This is, a, this is a human condition. And then once we have some understanding of, okay, everybody goes through this, and we can let ourselves off the hook a little bit, then what? So lots of different practices, but one, just to be present. Right? We're, we're present so little of the time. Turns out, you know, in various studies, you know, our mind is wandering about 50% of the time. Our attention span is less than eight seconds. Uh, so we're, we're not usually here. And not being here causes us pain. You know, it causes us anxiety or regret about the past. So how do we do it? Um, one of the ways is just to breathe, right? When we, when we take a deep breath, it's kind of a pattern interrupt for our life. So it starts that breathing activates the parasympathetic part of our nervous system, starts to relax our bodies a little bit. That relaxation of our bodies helps to then relax our mind. And then, so the, the breathing helps with our bodies and starts to help with our mind. And then from the mental side, if we can focus on something, it might just be naming it. So we could, in the present, just just start noticing the things in your room. So I'm sitting in my home office in quarantine and I, I could notice that my computer is in front of me, my tea. Uh, I can see the little steam coming off of my tea because it's still warm. I see my guitar and I just notice the different things and that, that starts to help the mind calm down. Uh, another thing that's helpful is to just name how I'm feeling. So it might, it just, we call it name it to tame it. So it might be something like, 
okay, this whole situation is making me anxious or, you know, right now I feel good, but mm, honestly, that feeling good makes me feel guilty because other people aren't feeling good. Whatever the situation is, we just name it. It's kind of like taking inventory. I think of it in a way, um, you know, it can be super helpful to, to name it and inventory it, like writing things down. I had a situation um, a few months ago where I was coming back to work after being out for a while. And it was, you know, Sunday night and I had, I'd been out of the office for a couple of weeks and I felt like I had this mountain of work that I was heading back to on Monday morning and it was making me anxious. So I just sat down for an hour and just organized my work, organized my thoughts. I created a list, you know, in the note, in the note tool that I have. And after an hour, I felt really good. Like I knew what I had to do on Monday morning. It was all organized and clean. And we, we, this list making helps us feel good sometimes. Like when we go to the grocery store, you know, having a list makes us feel confident and secure. We're not going to miss anything or we're not going to get distracted by other things. In the same way, in the same way list making works, journaling or listing off how we feel can really work. So if I'm in the present and I just list out all the things that are worrying me, it, it just gets it out of me and on paper. And, uh, and from that point, then we can start, you know, looking at the other side of things, right? We have all these negative thoughts. We can balance them with more optimistic thoughts and have a, a true view of the situation instead of focusing 100% on the negative. So that's the starting place. Yeah, let me just ask you a question about this name it to tame it. First of all, it's a great phrase. It's so memorable and it, it rhymes. And when it comes to list making, that makes perfect sense. I think, you know, the sense of I'm creating order and I'm getting, you know, getting a handle on this. But let's say somebody's feeling something yep. like panic. Okay, this is panic. I know this is panic. I'm barely <laughs> breathing. I feel yeah. panicked. I'm naming it. How is that taming it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think part of it, um, and in some situations it might be severe enough that we need something else, but for, for most situations, just getting it out of us, uh, helps to release some of it because then we can, as, as an observer to our own thoughts to say, okay, I'm feeling panic right now. And then go deeper. Like, what am I feeling? Well, I can feel my heart racing or I feel this anxiety about the thing that's going to happen tomorrow or the thing that's going to happen next week. And I just list all those things there's actually something calming about getting it out of us because what happens is we get, if it's inside of us, we just churn on maybe one thought or 15 thoughts or a hundred different thoughts all at once. And by getting it outside and becoming an observer, there's just something about that process. I, um, I'm less clear about how it works. I just know that it works and I know that we do it in multiple different ways. Mm hmm. Now, you have this very interesting job. I'm sure when you tell people, I'm the head of mindfulness and compassion programs at LinkedIn, they're like, wow, that might be the coolest job I've ever heard of. How did you get such a role? <laughs> yeah, I think it's the coolest job I ever heard of. Uh, I created it. <laughs> but how did we get there? So, good question. Um, so I think of myself as a bit of a dual agent. Uh, on the one hand, I've had a career as, a, as most recently as an executive in the support services or the customer service world. And for the first six years at LinkedIn, I was the VP of global customer operations, which included all the customer facing stuff, most of it, all the customer facing stuff that's not sales. Um, at the same time, I have had a practice. I started 
meditating or doing things like meditation uh, since I was about 13. I've been teaching it since I was 19 or 20 in college. And it's a big part of my life outside of work. And about five years ago, when I was still uh, in my old role, I started leading a meditation class at work. Now, this was a big deal because, um, well, I don't know about you, but I, I grew up in a place where we didn't really talk about the fact that I was a meditator. I grew up in super rural Kansas, like in uh, an hour from the nearest movie theater or fast food type of rural. And it wasn't mm. something we talked about as a kid. And so, but here I was at LinkedIn and at LinkedIn, we talk about transformation of self. We talk about the transformation of the world and it's a super mission and vision driven, uh, purpose driven company. And I thought, well, maybe this is a place where I can be my full self. I can bring this part of me, which is really important, and the, then the person at work can be the same person that I am outside. You know, I had reached this point in my career and in my personal life, I had gotten enough older or wiser or whatever, braver, that I was ready. And so five years ago, I started by leading one meditation class. And there was, I think, one person who showed up, and I'm sure that guy was just as terrified as I was. I never saw him again. But then the next week there were three and then five, and then it just became a regular thing. And then we'd have these special days, special events. You know, once, once a month we have this thing called in day for investment day, um, where we invest in ourselves and I'd have 35 people come to a meditation session. And then I'd get invited to, you know, the marketing teams offsite with 80 people breakouts or the finance team have 250 people ask me to meditate with them. Uh, and it became, I became, that was my identity then, which is what I intended because that's, that's who I am outside. And then for, this went on for a while and I collected a group of volunteers and together we built uh, a great mindfulness program inside of LinkedIn. And then for me, the tipping point was um, May of 2018, Jeff, Jeff Wiener, our CEO, gave the commencement address at Wharton where he's an alumni. And his number one, his only piece of advice that he shared was, if you're going to be successful in business, if you're going to be successful in life, the number one thing you can do is be compassionate. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. Here's a super successful CEO and this kind of high-powered school, and his only message is about being compassionate. Like, like Jeff is coming out as well. I'm sure that was not an easy particular thing. Seems kind of vulnerable. And then the next two or three times Jeff's on TV, that's all the reporters want to talk about is compassion. And so I was thinking to myself, okay, it's time that we – invest in this, right? Because if it's great that we're talking about it, but if we send 16 or 17,000 LinkedIn folks back to the desks, tell them that's the most important thing, do we know what that means? Because we weren't doing, you know, we, we were living it, but we weren't doing any training or anything like that. And so I made a pitch to Jeff and to our head of HR and created the role. So I'm head of mindfulness and compassion. And I can, I can certainly talk more about it, but that's how we got into it. And so I've been in the role for about a year and a half now. Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in this idea of how you moved from being a dual agent into a more integrated way of being at work. And I'm imagining that person yeah. who's listening, who says, you know, right now I'm kind of a dual agent. Yeah. I listen to the Sounds True podcast and that's how I get my spiritual nourishment. But at work, I put on XYZ outfit and act like that person and right. kind of keep my, my spiritual beliefs to myself, I'd kind of like to right. offer a meditation thing, but 
I don't know. You know, I don't know if that would be well received yeah. or not. What would be your advice to someone yeah. who's in that place? Sure. I think, you know, go where the energy is. And so one is you mentioned the world spiritual. I'm careful to make sure that everything we do at work is secular because I want it to be, I want the things that we offer at work to be completely open and to, to fit a diverse population and to be, um, you know, widely available. So everything we do is totally secular. And from that point, you know, go where the energy is. So if you have the energy to lead a yoga class or a meditation class, um, go for it, you know, and then find, you'll find where the energy is. If it's an environment where other people are interested, you'll, they'll probably be super glad to play along. If it's an environment where it's kind of scary, uh, you can always try something, you know, can, you can always retreat back to where you were. For me, the, um, the biggest barrier I had was really in my own head. So I've, I've never had any resistance to the things that we're doing. Now, for sure, I know that it helps that I was a leader at the company. I know that it helps that we have a, a CEO who's talking about it. But uh, I've, I've now seen in other companies people starting things, and, and it's almost always true. Like you start with the energy is and just go for it. And then beyond, beyond just leading a meditation, I think that there's the ways that we live. And this is, this is what I'm really interested in, in, I call it codifying or operationalizing compassion. Because I think that we've been taught, you know, kind of going back to the old um, 80s movie, uh, Wall Street, with Gordon Gekko's character, Greed is Good. You know, we've, we've been taught that there's a certain way that we do business. That we have to be rough and tough and gruff and whatever. And I just think that's outdated. And so people who are nice people, people who believe that the humanity, you know, that they can be a good person and do well at the same time. This is what I want to be a champion of so that all of us can, can be that dual agent. We don't have to flaunt our spirituality, but we can certainly live our values and we can certainly do business in a way that keeps everyone whole. Speaking of that old paradigm, the person who has to be, you know, rough and tough, and focused on the bottom line in order to be successful. And here we are talking about compassion. Have you found that there are indeed those certain trade-offs, like at a certain point, if you're going to do the compassionate thing, it might cost you more money. It might actually not lead to the same amount of profitability. Or do you think that's just an old belief? I think it's an old belief. And well, here's, so I, so at LinkedIn, we're a very employee-centric um, organization, meaning our intellectual property is the employees. Our most important asset is the employees. Now, there might be other companies that perhaps the, the product they offer is more of a commodity, and perhaps they view employees as less important. But more and more and more, you know, companies are, as we enter the information age, the employees are the product. They are the, the intellectual property. And so in that world, for sure, in that world, for sure, when we invest in our employees and we do things uh, that keep employees healthy and happy, um, we're going to be more successful, not less, more successful. And so I think about it in three ways, compassion in three ways. There's compassion that happens at the individual level. Like, Tammy, if you're having a bad day, I do something to help. 
that's that's something we see every day, and that's usually what people think of when they think of compassion. Then it's how do we operate at a team level, and there are practices that we can put together, you know, t- to have compassion at the root of it. And what we know here is that a few years ago, Google did this project called Project Aristotle. They wanted to know what factors made the best teams, the most successful, high-performing teams. Turned out the number one factor was psychological safety, meaning I can fail in front of you, I can be myself in front of you, perhaps even hardest, I can be, I can win, I can be successful in front of you and still feel held and supported. To me, that psychological safety has compassion at the root of it. So it's a success strategy for teams. And we know this is a success strategy for companies as well. So the book Firms of Endearment about 10 years ago uh, showed that companies that took care of all of their stakeholders, not just their shareholders, were the ones that actually were more profitable. They were more, well, more profitable, more successful over time to the tune of like 14x, not 14% better, 1400% better. So I do think that in many, maybe most, maybe all situations, you know, when you do the compassionate thing over the long term, when we think about the we versus just the me, over the long term, the company will actually be more successful, not less. So I don't think this is some sort of Silicon Valley luxury. I think this is how you do business. This is how you become successful as a person, as a team, as a company. Well, let's talk about teams and psychological safety. How do you mm-hmm. help a team develop the kind of compassion that translates into increased vulnerability, increased sense of, you know, I can be myself on this team. How do you actually do it working with the team? Yeah. It's a good question. I think there are a number of things and it starts with awareness. So awareness that, um, that we have diversity and diversity in all its flavors, not just gender or sexual preference, but like thought diversity. Like we're all going to think about this problem in a different way. And so how do we, how do we both move fast, make decisions quickly, but also, you know, make sure everybody's, um, everybody's voice is heard that needs and wants to be heard. Um, it starts with the leader's behavior. You know, is the leader showing vulnerability? Are they sharing? Are they communicating in the right way? So there's all kinds of practices that lead there. And this is, this is really the operation, operation, easy for me to say, operationalizing it, of it. Um, So let's see, it's things like uh, decision-making, being super clear on how decisions are going to be made. Uh, But then that that might just be cut and dry. That even happens in the old world. If you're going to go command and control, John, the boss, makes all the decisions. So then you go one click farther, like how do we handle conflict? Um, So as an example, at, at LinkedIn and at other places, we have a thing called clean resolution. So as an example, if there are three people on the team, you know, and two of us disagree on something in the old days or the poor behavior is what happens is if Tammy's my boss, I go to Tammy, I complain about John and Tammy goes, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. And then what happens is John goes to Tammy and complains about Scott and she listens to this and think, well, yeah, that sounds good too. I'm not sure who's right. And it creates by doing it in a vacuum or without each other, it creates all kinds of dissonance. So instead, we have a process called clean escalation or even better, clean resolution. It means if there's a conflict, the two of you create a shared document on what the understanding is. You agree on that document and then you go together you know, to the manager to resolve it. Um, 
And so it's a process that relies on everybody to play their part. Because if I go to the boss and I complain about the other person, the boss's role to say, actually, stop. What did John say about this? And actually, I can't continue this conversation because he's not in the room. We need to have everybody in the room to do it. So this is just one way. You know, it's, it's, the, it's starting with the ethos that we're, this is how it's going to be. And then it's the, it's the codification of these practices that help put that into place. Um, another, you know, just simple thing is if you're in a meeting and this is different in today's world, but in the old world, let's say that seven of us are in a conference room and one person is working from home. Now, often what will happen is the seven people will do all the talking and the one person you never hear from them. So every once in a while, you know, you take into account, like, let's say Janie is working at home. So somebody should stop the meeting and go, actually, you know what? I haven't heard from Janie for a while. I really want to know what she has to say on this topic. And it's just making sure that their voice is heard. And so it's these types of things and a thousand others that can help us really work more closely together. But it starts with the ethos that we are going to. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that being compassionate, having compassionate teams is not a Silicon Valley luxury. And I'm imagining that person who says, yes, it is. That's why they can afford to have someone who's head of mindfulness and compassion programs, because they have the extra money and time and margin to be able to focus on this kind of training. You know, the company where I work, we don't have time for this. We just got to get stuff done. What would you say to that person? Yeah, Sure. And look, you don't have to have a head of mindfulness and compassion. I mean, part of my job is to hack through the jungle where no trail is, right? And so take advantage of the things that are already out there. And so it's just putting these things into practice. Um, so some of them, you know, some of them I hope to codify and to, to be able to, to say, here's a nice packaged list of them. Some of them are already out there. Um, but there are definitely best practices in leading teams. And if somebody says, well, we don't have time I think you don't have time to not do it, right? If, if you work in an environment where, where people are important, then every time somebody leaves the team, it's massive amounts of waste to go hire and train somebody new. So even making the employee experience better so that you have a lower attrition rate, you know, a higher retention rate and a higher employee engagement rate. You know, if you have a higher employee engagement rate, those employers, employees are going to get a lot more done and you're going to end up being more productive and more profitable. So you don't have time not to do it. And maybe you're not all sitting mm-hmm. around meditating. We're not either. Um, but it's, it's the idea that you're going to put these good practices into place and focus on the individuals and the team's development. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I've been so curious about this operationalizing. It's not the easiest word for anyone to say of compassion no, it's not. in we, business. It's a different word. Yeah. Yeah. And how you're doing it at LinkedIn. And I know you've come to this definition of compassion. And just briefly, I'm going to share the three parts because I want to focus on the third part, which is that the first is this awareness okay. and deep understanding of others. And I think most people would say, yeah, that's compassion. It's an awareness and a deep understanding of others. Yes, it's a mindset of wishing the best for others. And again, I think people would say, yes, that's compassion. I wish others well, truly all others. I think people are tracking. But then the third part of compassion at work, the way that I understand you're defining it is the courage to take action. And that's where I really wanted to dig in a bit, Scott. What are the courageous Mm -hmm. actions that we take in a business when we're compassionate? 
Sure. That's a great question. And there's no simple answer, but I'll give you some examples. And the other, the other even simpler model, I think of all this work is I call it moving from me to we, right? So anytime I move from just thinking about myself to thinking about all of us, or as the company, just thinking about shareholders and move to thinking about all stakeholders, then I think we're tracking towards compassion. So let me give some examples at kind of the, at the highest level. So as an example, our, uh, in sales, you know, you think of sales as being perhaps the most competitive environment, perhaps the toughest in some, in some places to think about compassion. So our head of sales will be in front of, let's call it five or 6,000 salespeople and say, look, it's all about our members' value. So in other words, don't just sell our members or our customers something they don't need just so you can hit your quota at the end of the quarter. Now, I think that's pretty powerful. And, you know, we could probably write a playbook of exactly how this might happen in a sales organization. We might come up with 100 different day-to-day practices. But it's this one story that we need to remember, which helps put everything else into perspective. That it's not just about us and our revenue. Look, if I can, I could totally sell something our customer doesn't need and hit my quarter, you know. And and in the short term, that's going to be great because I I made my number and I'm going to make a little bit more cash at the end of the quarter. But long term, what's going to happen with that customer? Long term, they're going to come back and they're not going to be as happy because they overspent or they bought something they didn't need. And maybe they don't want to work with me the next round, or maybe they don't want to work with LinkedIn at all. They go find a different solution. So over the long term, that's going to have consequences. And so focusing on our members first and really providing them value will lead to goodness. Uh, another example is in, our, in how we develop products. And so when I was um, in my old role, I was on the product team. Uh, every Friday, we have a meeting that's about you know, an hour and a half long. And the top 25 to 40 executives in the product world and around the company will get together and we'll review our top, let's call it 20 or 25 metrics for the company. Now we used to call this meeting the growth and engagement meeting. And that's because that's what it is. It's all about is LinkedIn growing? Are people engaging with the site? But about three years ago, three or four years ago, um, Jeff had taken over as head of product. We really, really wanted to focus on member value. And so we renamed the meeting, the member value meeting. And we reframed all of the metrics so that for every group of metrics, the number one metric for that group needed to be something that, you know, we'd be proud to show one of our members. So as an example, in the world of jobs, in the old days, the number one metric was the number of jobs on LinkedIn, because it would tell you basically how many, how many jobs companies have paid to put on LinkedIn so that we can, they could attract um, employees. Well, now we've shifted, and the number one metric in that world is now confirmed hires. A confirmed hire means the company actually hired someone using LinkedIn, but also from the member side, um, they got a job using LinkedIn. And so that shows the value that, the value that we're able to provide. Now, of course, we check the other one as well, but it's, uh, it's this balance. So these are, these are just a couple ways. You know, so an, another, another example might be uh, you know, I asked the, the head of legal, I was asking him if he wanted to talk to me about compassion. And he's like, yeah, I'm not really sure. And because maybe he doesn't really use that word. But in talking about it another way, I asked him what was most important to him. You know, if he were to 
uh, leave a legacy of the things that he was most proud of. You know, what, what was most important? And he told me it's all about member trust, you know, keeping the site safe, making sure that members feel you know, safe and secure on the site. And I thought that was really interesting because if you think about your chief legal person in most companies, many companies that I've been in, you know, the first thing might have been to say to protect intellectual property or a number of things. But instead, his very first, his top priority was something that was member oriented. So again, I think there's a thousand ways we could build a, a detailed playbook, but it starts with this top down level that we're going to provide value for on purpose for our customers. And we're also going to make it a great employee experience and we're going to have a good business model. And if we keep a balance of those three things, then we're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to circle back to this definition of compassion that you offered that's just so simple, which is moving from me to we, and simple mm-hmm. and powerful and memorable. And it, people, I think you just immediately get it. And I think one of the questions that comes up for me is, well, how do we define we? I mean, you talked about how you know it's moving from uh, the individual to think about all the stakeholders. And I think you know one of the things that mm-hmm. I'm experiencing right now is a lot of compassion and quite honestly feelings of anguish for people mm-hmm. in the culture who are really suffering from the current COVID-19 crisis, who have lost their jobs, whose businesses won't sure. have layers of protection, and wondering, you know, at Sounds True, where does our we end? Who's a stakeholder in the company? Everybody in the world? Question mark. I wonder how you see that. Wow. I think that's a uh, that's a good question. I haven't thought too much about it, but I would I would again go to I think like a bullseye. So your target is probably the employees of Sounds True, the the shareholders or the owners of Sounds True, and all of your current customers. It was probably the three legs of the stool that I'd start with, because those are the that's your kind of current sphere of influence, and then and then I think it's up to the leaders of the company to decide if they want to go further than that influence. It could be that I don't know what your numbers are, but let's say that we have a million customers, right? And we have these million customers, and we can service them if we only did X, Y, and Z. You could come up with a list of things to to better help those customers. But if you wanted to go further, more broadly, and help the world, then, then um, I think we do so with caution, right? You, it's kind of like if you're going to adopt a pet, you can, we could adopt a cat, and maybe we could adopt a second cat, and maybe you could adopt a third cat, but could you adopt 400 cats, or could you adopt 400 elephants? At some point, um, our resources are less than our ambitions. And so we, we go with where our focus can be, uh, can be put to best use. That's good. It's a reasonable answer, Scott. Okay, one of the things <laughs> I wanted to ask you, you know, you're partnering with Sounds True, LinkedIn, Wisdom 2.0, and Sounds True are working together with NYU to create the Inner MBA, this training program that will help people develop the kind of inner skills we've been talking about in terms of being vulnerable, bringing themselves forwards, the skills that it takes to create real psychological safety on teams. And I'm curious to know, in your experience, have you worked with people who seem to have some kind of Achilles heel? 
meaning they're great in some parts of their job. But if only they could learn certain skills, certain interpersonal skills, then it it wouldn't sure. be their downfall the way it is now. And have you seen such people really grow and change through the kinds of mindfulness and compassion programs you're offering? And if so, how? Like, What do they learn that then changes them? Absolutely. Um, so many examples. Uh, let's see. I'll give, you, I'll give you a couple. I had this one woman uh, who was, I'll say, early career individual contributor, maybe five or eight years into her career. Uh, She came and we just happened to see each other in the hallway, you know, and one of her friends convinced me to tell her, to tell me her story. And, uh, and so we got to talking and she's like, look, I tried this mindfulness thing because last year, a year ago from the time we were talking, you guys did this 30 day challenge. And I'll tell you before, before that, I thought this mindfulness stuff was just a bunch of BS just a bunch of hooey. Uh, and so she said, but I tried the challenge because it was a challenge, you know, and she made the big fist movement. And so I, I like a challenge. And so I meditated for, for 30 days in a row. And then I just kept going. And now I'm on a, a little, whatever it was, about a 400 day streak, I think she said. And it, she said, it's totally changed my life. So here's what's happened. Like this morning, I just presented in front of my all hands of 80 people. I had a 10 minute presentation and I crushed it. And you know what? A year ago, I never, ever, 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 ever would have signed up for that. But, and even today I felt nervous, but I went into a conference room, I did my breathing and I went out and I killed it. And, you know, you could tell by her face how proud she was of the, of the overhaul in her life that she had made. And later I was talking to, you know, a manager that was in that group and, and he was talking about her and he didn't know that we had had this conversation and he was saying how much, how much she had changed and he was wondering what was going on. <laughs> so that's one, just, you know, a personal change. I was working, I'm working with a, a more senior person, kind of a director, senior director level person who rocketed up the organization because of his really brilliance. He's a brilliant guy. Uh, And then his career stalled out. And it stalled out because he can be very abrupt. Uh, You know, he can use his his intelligence as kind of a blunt instrument. And people did not find him much fun to work with. They could, you know, they had all kinds of words they would use about uh, the type of person he is. Now, he's a really nice person, but he comes off as being arrogant. He comes off as Mm -hmm. not really being a team player or being a listener. And so that was causing him his career to stall. And so over the last year, he's really, he's really taken it to heart. You know, he sees, he sees how the leaders at LinkedIn are, are different than perhaps other places he's been. And he's really doing the inner work. He really wants to develop his listening skills. He really wants to develop his uh, empathy skills. And he's absolutely not wired that way. Um, but as he's trying, he, he, unlike many people just are naturals at this whole compassion thing, but he has to break it down. He's like, all right, exactly. What do I do here? Exactly. What do I do here? How do I, how do I get people to think I'm a good listener? You know, and we go through skill by skill and it's changing. I can see him softening. I can see people around him softening. I can see them saying things like how much of a a better leader he's become, how much more empathetic he's becoming. So these are the types of things, whether it's, it's, it's personal transformation, all of it, 
but each one of us is coming at our development and our, our interest level in a very different place. And so I think things like the inner, inner MBA give us a broad base education in this inner world. And uh, each one of us has something to learn from that. I think it's a beautiful thing. How were you able to break down listening skills for this person to make it really like, okay, step one. <laughs> step one is an intention, right? That if you ask somebody a question, you're actually going to listen. So, um, so we built in, you know, one of my favorite things, one of my favorite quotes right now is from James Clear. He wrote the book Atomic Habits. He talks about our lives do not rise to the level of our goals. They fall to the level of our systems. And so my friend really wanted, uh, he's a systems guy. And so we build it into, into the things he does. So as an example, if you're going to have a, a meaningful, how are you conversation, we made the system that the first teammate he sees every day, he's going to ask him how they are, but it, he's going to force a real conversation. Instead of just saying, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Oh, I'm good too. And then you move on. It's like, no, how are you? And you stay and you look him in the eyes and you wait for an answer. And if you don't get a real answer, you ask again. It's like, no, no, really. This whole COVID thing's going on. Like, how, how are you doing? And so it's when somebody, and to break this back down, you know, when, when somebody really believes that you're listening, really, truly listening, they'll go deeper. And so when they go deeper, it builds a deeper connection. I think of it like the, like the iceberg, right? As we, as we lower the waterline and iceberg and we show the other person more of ourselves, humans are programmed to mirror vulnerability. So as we become a little more vulnerable, we, we share something of ourselves. We show that we're going to hold someone else when they show their vulnerability. Then what I call the dropping of the waterline happens with both of us and we can build a real connection. So that was just one example, but we're still working on it with him. Is there any way that your work at LinkedIn teaching people mindfulness and compassion is being measured? Are there any like, here's a study we've done. Here's the data. Yeah, good question. I think for now, what we're measuring is, um, is more like participation. You know, if we hold a workshop, do people come? Uh, do they like what we're doing? I think over time, uh, I'm interested in doing primary research on both mindfulness and on compassion. So as an example, we, um, we just purchased a company called Glint in the last year or so that does employee surveys, employee satisfaction surveys. And I think there's tons of data that we probably already have. So you might imagine these employee surveys ask questions like, um, you know, my manager treats me with dignity and respect as an example, as one of the questions. And you might, then take that question and balance it against things like employee engagement or attrition rates or other of the survey questions to find out, as an example, if managers exhibit compassion or display compassion in these few ways, like treating people with dignity and respect, does it result in higher performing teams or does it result in you know, employee engagement numbers? And you can get that straight from the surveys but I think then it's interesting to take it further. You know, there's, there's already a good deal of research and we can do more on, you know, what's the things like productivity level from employee engagement 
or all the connectivity of business results from those employee engagement and probably tie all that back to compassionate behavior. I'm really interested in that piece. Um, and on the mindfulness front, I think it'd be interesting to do research on, on uh, actually harder metrics. You know, so people who meditate five days a week or use a certain app for 10 minutes a day, five days a week, you know, if they're salespeople, do they hit their number more? If they're engineers, do they write more lines of code with less defects? If there's customer service people, do they handle more cases with higher customer satisfaction? Those are the things that, uh, that haven't been researched just yet. So to answer your question right now, we're just measuring you know, consumption. But over time, I think we're really interested in, uh, in measuring the harder numbers. Scott, I want to ask you a couple more personal questions. You mentioned that you have been teaching meditation since you were 19 years old. What happened in your early life such that you were teaching at such a young age? And then what's it like for you now that your dual agent world has become one world, one world of teaching with sure. business? Sure. Um, when I was... 13, I had, I guess, what I would call a spiritual awakening. I, um, I won't go into all of the details, but I, I had gr- I'd been raised in one particular tradition, and it just didn't make much sense to me. And I found, uh, through a series of events, another tradition that made a lot of sense to me. And part of, part of that tradition involved the contemplative practice of, of going within, and it I would say it probably looks like meditation, but it's it's more about the connection with the divine. I'm coming at this from a, from a spiritual side, and that that has been a really important part of my life to the point where, yeah, as you mentioned, I was leading these sessions in college, and because it's been a really important part of my life, and because I'm able to express more of that and be more of that person, it finally feels like, you know, almost 30 years. Uh, 30 years of, well, not quite 30 years of working, but 30 years after leaving um, leaving high school-ish, it's amazing, right? Anytime you get to create your own job and fill it full of all of your passions and all the things you love and that you're good at and enjoy doing, uh, and somebody agrees to pay you for that, and and the world needs it and wants it and asks for more of it, that is, that is pretty amazing. I call it... Um, you know, my old job at LinkedIn, I always said that that was, that was my dream job, and it was. And now my job is my lottery job, meaning that if I won mm-hmm. the lottery, I would still come to work because this is what I want to mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to talk about this idea of using spiritual language or not using spiritual language, because when we were talking about sure. introducing mindfulness into a business, you recommended, hey, let's not use spiritual language. And yet, when you talk yeah. about your own inner experiences, you use words like yeah. connecting with the divine. And, yep. you know, this is a place that's yep. it's edgy, you know, here at Sounds True, it's a company I started, as you know, and I feel comfortable using yep. spiritual language, although I always try to engage in some type of explanatory pluralism, where I use a lot of different words and a lot of different doorways to welcome people in. Sure. You know, one of the sure. things that's interesting to me is just how to let people at work be more forthright with their experiences of the divine, the divine. And I wonder what you think about that. Yeah. 
That's a great question. I've treaded carefully because I want to start from the position, as, as you have just said, uh, start from the position that whatever I offer is available and useful to everyone, regardless of their belief system. So that's my starting position. Now, how do you talk about the divine, even in terms of uh, if someone is an atheist? Well, to me, this word of compassion is, is really close. Because when I think of the divine, I think of it in terms of love, in terms of unconditional love. Um, and for me, compassion is that love in action. And so if we can talk about love, if we can talk about a word that is like that, that, uh, that people can accept and they, they feel that connection. And for people who already have a belief system or a worldview, they can, they'll connect the dots from there, right? And they can then internalize that and express that inwardly in the way that's most comfortable for them. So I think we're getting closer and closer and closer. Um, but uh, I, I like to start from the place where I don't want to, because this is new territory, I don't want to turn people off before we get started. And so I'm, I guess mm -hmm. I'm treading a little bit carefully, but also trying to push the boundaries of what we can do. And I think that's where I'm coming in here on the, obviously, on the pushing the boundaries side of it. And the reason yeah. is that I think sometimes the things that people care the most about actually have to do with these experiences of deep love inside, if you want to use that word. And yet they feel like, God, I would never share that at work. People would think yeah. that I was, yeah. you know, people would think that I was some kind of spiritual freak or something like that. And yet it's what is truly the most meaningful. Much of our life is oriented around it. And I wonder how do we make it safer in environments where it's like, well, it has to be, you know, scientifically based, evidence proofed. I mean, a word like mindfulness, people, everybody, oh, great. It's a safe word. Yeah. We can all use it. But how do we invite sure. people to share? I think it's, it's the same way we invite people to share their experiences of diversity, inclusion, and belonging, right? If somebody shares their deeply personal story, and we all go, mm-hmm, cool. And then we move on to the next item of business or worse or worse, then they don't ever share that again, right? So if we create an environment where people can truly be themselves, then they can share whatever experience they want. As long as, you know, it's met, as long as, um, well, that, that's it, purely. We stop. Now, I think that what some of us have scars about is uh, some traditions where, where, um, the missionary efforts get so strong that they're, yeah. they're telling me their story so that they can convert me to whatever they believe. And that, I think that's w what we can't have because that's in the same way saying that there's only one way to think. So just like maybe it's, maybe it's just the analogy is the diversity inclusion belonging area where if we all recognize that we're different, uh, first we're same. We all have, you know, similar ways that we are. And then we can celebrate our differences. And when people tell their stories, we hold them and say, wow, that's amazing. I'm glad that you're you. I'm glad that you can be here with us. You know, and we, we provide each other that freedom, but also that support that we're here to, uh, to, that we're here for each other. Maybe that's the magic answer. Scott, as we come to a close, just a couple more questions. One, I'm curious, you mentioned how there's an old paradigm of business where, you know, you better get what's yours or 
you're not going to be successful. Yeah. And a type of business education that went along with it. When you think of the new paradigm of business, how would you describe it? This is what the future of businesses will look like, businesses that are based on this model that you've been describing of compassion, employee engagement. Yeah. Uh, Wow. I come back to me to we, right? So the, if we want to end up in a we spot, meaning we want companies to think about all of their stakeholders, not just their shareholders. We want individuals to be thinking about how they can be compassionate. We give them all a set of you know, guidelines and behaviors, but really it's the underlying ethos which drives it more than the guidelines and behaviors. And then the me part is we give them the tools to take care of themselves to develop inwardly, to raise their level of consciousness, to raise their level of awareness so that all of it becomes easier, that all of it becomes second nature. So that's my worldview. Mm-hmm. And then finally, this show, the Sounds True podcast, is called Insights at the Edge. And I'm always curious to know what someone's own learning edge is and in relationship really to your work, <laughs> what's your edge right now, yeah. Scott? Wow. Good question. At the work, so personally, let's see. There's a couple things. You can do both. Maybe personally so, and at work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do both. Okay. So the work the work part is all about scale. Right? Because I'm a I'm a team of one and my my program manager slash assistant. So we're we're a mighty team of two. Um and right now it's it's about how do we how do we codify the things that we're doing? How do we how do we build scale into everything that we're doing so that we can really have an impact? Um, and in this moment, we're all learning how to do things virtually. You know, we've been leading a lot of live in-person things, and now we're quickly pivoting to make everything available in in um, in Zoom form which is really interesting because this work is highly interactive, highly personal. And then how do we do that over a conference call? So that's, that's what's going on at work. Personally, I am really, really, my lesson apparently in life for the last year is about living in the present. And that has never been more true than today when the, when the future is so uncertain, it forces us to live in the present uh, to, um, to maintain our sense of balance. So it keep, for me, it keeps coming back to that. And there's, you know, a thousand ways every day that I get distracted. But that's the, that's the underlying lesson. I've been talking to Scott Shoot. He's the head of mindfulness and compassion programs at LinkedIn. And LinkedIn is partnering with Sounds True and Wisdom 2.0, along with a division of NYU called Mindful NYU, to offer a nine-month immersion learning program. It's called the Inner MBA. You can go to www.innermbaprogram.com to learn more. There are three training tracks. One track is a storytelling track with CEOs like Rose Macario of Patagonia, Joey Bergstein of Seventh Generation, and Eileen Fisher along with a second track of conscious business trainers, and then a third track of wisdom teachers 
such as Tara Brock, Jack Kornfield, Carolyn Mace, and Sharon Salzberg. And the whole inner MBA is about how we can transform ourselves and make the journey that Scott's been describing from me to we. And again, you can learn more at innermbaprogram.com. Scott, I have to say you're a terrific partner. You're so loving and positive and always willing to roll up your sleeves. I so appreciate working with you. You're really embodying in our relationship what you talk about. Uh, I feel like a a more powerful we because of you. So thank you. Excellent. Well, I, I enjoy our partnership. I enjoy the work that we're all doing together. So thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world 